Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to another amazing day here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for taking a listen. This is your source for Kentucky politics. As a reminder, make sure you're tuning in tomorrow. We should have that General Flynn interview airing then. Very big, important interview, of course, for the show. One of our probably most well-known people we've interviewed. He's coming to Kentucky uh, this upcoming weekend. And so we want to make sure that we hear from him and at the same time, make sure that we're sharing out about that event. As I brought up yesterday, you can get tickets uh, to that General Flynn event happening in Shepherdsville on the 19th. You can head on over to the rwfforumky.org. That's rwfforumky.org. That stands for the Republican Women Federal Forum. Uh, That is a Kentucky Republican women's group, and they are the ones bringing Flynn in. So please make sure you go ahead and purchase tickets as that is a important event. Good thing to kind of hear from. So I do want to encourage you to do that. Today, I'm going to start off by removing a little bit of a political hat, putting on a little bit more of my Christian hat as I discuss something that's happening in our politics as well as within our state. So this does apply because we do see Bashir pushing this a lot. So that's part of the reason I felt it was important to bring it up. Now, for some of you, uh, did watch the Super Bowl. Some of you didn't, and that's okay as well. Um, I just kind of watched it out of interest. I wasn't really uh, rooting for either team, per se, but I I did watch the Super Bowl. And during the Super Bowl, there was an interesting ad that has certainly raised some eyebrows. Now, this group has done prior ads during the Super Bowl as almost a a way to kind of bring people into Christ, which sounds like a good thing kind of initially, but this particular ad has drawn some controversy because during this, and maybe you saw it, it featured uh, Jesus washing many different people's feet, some of them obviously uh, transgender or gay, um, you know, holding the rainbow flag, so on and so forth. And uh, at the end of the ad, it showed that Jesus came to wash feet, uh, not to hate. And so we see this commonly uh, amongst our politics now that somehow if you express some sort of discontent uh, with homosexuality, with transgenderism, with things that obviously abortion, for an example, um, they had him washing feet outside of a, a abortion clinic too as well, that if you speak out about how those things are sin and that they're wrong, you're somehow spreading hate. Now, some people believe that this ad was regardless a good thing, as long as it's bringing people to Christ, why does it matter? But it does matter. When it matters into our conversation of politics, I'm going to dig into that. But as as Christians, once again, removing my politicking hat, putting on my Christian hat, um, as Christians, it really does matter that our beliefs stay true and that the people we're bringing in, we are bringing in, we accept everybody. But to say that a, a sin is not a sin is lying. It's serving the laws of man more than the laws of God. 
And uh, to quote a little bit from the Bible now, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate this one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. As Matthew 6, 24. And when we're serving the laws of man and God at the same time, we're going to end up loving one and hating the other. And in this case, we so often see these liberals that are adopting this weird belief process of Christianity that they are uh, hate the laws of God and love the laws of man. And they'll then they'll try to backfill or change uh, the Bible, what its meaning is, change God, change Christianity in order to fit their belief system. And, and the Bible is very clear. You know, it's funny, I, I posted about this online. Somebody brought up, you know, for an example, tattoos. Well, tattoos are against the law. Are people with, are against the Bible? Are people with tattoos uh, one sinning? One, there's never a belief, nobody's saying, when we say that homosexuality, transgenderism, abortions are sin, uh, we're not claiming that we ourselves don't sin as well, but we recognize what we do as sin in something that isn't good. I think that's the unique difference here, that if you if you say you can be gay or transgender or get abortions, for example, and that's a good thing, uh, and it's not sin, that is the problem. It doesn't disqualify you from being a part of the Christian faith per se, but if you're not seeking to not be gay or not to be transgender and you're continuing to live that way and not even acknowledge it's sin, then you're ignoring the world of God. And this is very, very dangerous that we allow liberals in our politics to continue to recast Christianity uh, in this way because they want to use our faith to justify all kinds of different government actions. And if we are not sound in our beliefs and our faith, then we'll run into, um, well, continuing issues and growing farther apart from what is God's word. And, and what does God want for us? Because remember, he blesses us when we live according to his commandments. And when we don't live according to his commandments, we will not uh, live his blessed lives. So liberals, though, do recognize that they need to take over Christianity, that it's very important. Because many of their fights to remake this country, or in this case, Kentucky as well, when you're talking about Bashir, have hit Christian roadblocks. I mean, the number one reason why Republicans have a majority in Kentucky is because the Democrats and their beliefs have ran into conflict with Christian beliefs. It used to be, and you used to hear this, you can't uh, uh, come out and say that you're for abortion in Kentucky. Even as a Democrat, you couldn't be for abortion. These typical blue dog kind of Democrats we talked about, that that while they had more uh, liberal social uh, liberal spending policies, they're still, as we'd consider them today, socially conservative. They didn't believe in gay marriage. They didn't believe in all this transgender stuff. They didn't believe in abortion. They still had held true to Christian values. But when the Democrat Party as a whole started making it very clear that they no longer hold on to those traditional Republican, or Republican, those traditional Christian values, they started losing that majority in Kentucky. And they recognize that. And it's growing to be a big problem. So rather than trying to just completely tell you you shouldn't be a Christian, what they're trying to do is change what it means to be a Christian. What should Christians believe in the first place? 
And so that's why they're tossing around this message of tolerance. Uh, and it's not just tolerance, because of course, there's a big difference between saying that my government should arrest people and throw them in jail for being homosexual, and then saying, hey, you know what, we should bless these marriages by allowing them to get married. That, that is celebration. The marriage part celebration. Tolerance is I'm not going to throw you in jail just because you have a different lifestyle than I do. That is tolerance. But celebration is taking that other step to saying, well, you need to go ahead and, and gay marriage is, is something that is great and amazing and we should celebrate it. Well, that isn't tolerance now. And so they want to toss around this message because they're trying to drag people back to a voting Democrat that are very Christian individuals, but also they're going to have some big, big problems into the future when it comes to holding together their, their voting blocks. Because the Democrats have kind of pieced together this white, liberal, non-Christian voting block, right, with this this block of one minority voters but the problem they're going to have into the future is as more black voters uh realize especially black voters and i'm going to tell you why i'm bringing up black voters here in a bit but why more black voters uh, uh start to recognize and wake up to how far off from their values they are it can spell some real disaster for democrats into the future and to make this point i'm going to dig into some pew research studies that compares christianity and faith amongst voting blocks here after this short break you're listening to the andrew cooperator show your source for kentucky politics want to reach out to the show feel free to email info at the andrew show.com once again that's info at theandrewshow.com and you are back with the andrew cooperator show your source for kentucky politics before the break we're digging into i'd removed a little bit of my politic and hat and put on my christian hat it's talking about the christian faith and how the democrats and we saw this with that super bowl ad are trying to remake what it means to be a christian what it means to believe into in into christianity because well, quite frankly, many of their uh, main talking points and many of their beliefs of one chunk of their base greatly disagrees with the Christian faith. But they need the Christian faith to agree with it because they run into issues when it comes to their other voting blocks that they rely on to continue to win. Because they, they need both voting blocks to deliver victories. But if they alienate one voting block over another, they will lose elections, like just hugely lose elections. And when the voting blocks, where, where it really comes into conflict, their beliefs with Christian beliefs, and why that is a big problem for Democrats, is um, the, the black voting block. So this is from a Pew Research study in 2021. It said almost all black Americans, 97%, say they believe in God or a higher power. When asked to specify further, three quarters, 74% say they believe in God as described in their religion's holy scripture, such as the Bible for Christians or Quran for Muslims. An additional 21% say they do not believe in God as described in the scripture, but they do believe in some other kind of higher power or spiritual force, only 2% reported in not believing in a higher power at all. But so you say, well, you know, obviously the black voter is very Christian. Actually, the black voter is the most, a lot of ways, the most Christian voting block in politics today at 74% believing God as in the Bible. See, because where Democrats run into problems is when we look at the same string of studies from Pew Research, we see that when we look at party lines, 
Republicans believe in God as in the Bible at a rate of 70%. And Democrats believe in God as described in the Bible at only 45%. Now take out black Democrats from that, and that rate would be even lower, probably right around 35%. In fact, a fully 15% of Democrats don't believe in God at all. And only 2% of black voters reported the same thing. So for Democrats, this whole issue of Christianity has become a real future liability for them. They've already lost many of their white Christian voters because of how far and crazy and off base from the faith and and those values, those true Christian values have gotten. If they start to lose their black Christian voters as well, who wake up and realize that, wow, what Democrats believe in do not agree or coalesce with my Christian values at all, and realize at the same time that their faith politically is more important to them and agrees more that that their values that come from faith is more important than any kind of supposed racism claims that the Democrats like to make and have been cooking up for decades in order to keep that voter block on lock, that black voter block, well, the Democrats will be in real, real trouble. And that's why we see and will continue to see a full court press by liberal individuals that don't even really understand what it means to be a Christian and haven't really sat down to read the Bible to try to recast what those Christian values mean and what the Bible says. But what's funny is, is this even involves ignoring the experts. They always claim they love the experts, but when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to Christianity, Democrats love to ignore those who have been in the word the longest and those who attend church. For an example, When Pew surveys Christians who pray daily and attend church weekly, you'll find that the vast, vast majority think homosexuality should be discouraged. So the people paying the most attention, and of course the preachers too as well, the vast majority of them don't agree that homosexuality is just like not a big deal. It, 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 it is not a sin. It is a sin that should be discouraged. The vast majority believe that. But Dems, like Bashir, want you to ignore this. They want to tell you that you should believe that, well, you know, this shouldn't be discouraged. Come on now, don't you just love everybody like Jesus did? Come on, we should just love everyone. And they want to change what that means because they want to keep that voting block together. They need to keep this haphazard base together. But what about abortion? When we look again at those who attend church weekly, pray weekly, read scripture at least once weekly, we see that the vast majority, as in nearly 80%, believe abortion should be illegal in almost all cases. Yet this doesn't stop liberals from trying to claim that it doesn't go against the Bible, God's word, Christianity, to get an abortion. I have, I, I, this may shock you, I have some very liberal family members. And recently, one of them actually walked out of church when a pastor had the audacity to say that abortion does, in fact, go against the Bible. You know, he's the expert in the room, the preacher, but despite that, this liberal thought they knew better and decided to go ahead and walk out, even though the last time they probably cracked open and read their Bible was several years ago. And this is my overall point, this war on Christianity. It isn't just trying to destroy Christianity. They're not trying to destroy it. As much as the war on Christianity is about trying to shape what it even means to be a Christian, because that's what liberals want it to mean. We see it from Bashir. We see it from all Democrats. They recognize the faith's importance but also recognize it's presenting a lot of obstacles for them into the future as they continue down this crazy liberal path. And it's easier for them to try and convince us what we believe isn't 
is is true, but we're just interpreting it wrong, than it is to try to destroy faith altogether, which in the end is their goal. That's why these little things like that Super Bowl ad or these things of allowing Bashir to continue to claim these things, these, these, you know, love everyone. That's what my religion teaches. That means we shouldn't outlaw chopping genitalia off minors. That's not the Christian thing to do. If we allow that to continue without pushing back, we will lose what our faith really means altogether. We'll lose God's, not just his commandments, but God's law for us, what his, what his word was for us. Because we're misinterpreting what his son Jesus did and said. Yes, Jesus washed feet, but it was that conversation afterwards saying that what you're doing is a sin and you should stop that they want us all to ignore. But we can't afford to do that. If you're a Christian, you can't afford to do that. You will be judged for your actions. And if you're not repentant, you will be judged more harshly. That is just the fact of what the Bible says. You can't ignore that even as much as Democrats want you to, but also by allowing them to take over our faith and tell us what it means, we also are giving them the ability to claim in arguments. For an example, recently, some conversations about K-12 through education, so on and so forth, have come up, as well as we saw out of South Dakota, them not wanting to uh, give $40 a month to kids outside of school on an EBT card that otherwise don't qualify for EBT. And when we saw those pushes, they claimed that, well, the Christian thing to do is to do that. You don't want to feed kids? You're not a very good Christian. Oh, your faith says that you should be giving and charitable, so you don't want, uh, you don't like food stamps programs. Well, that's because you're not a good Christian. We can't allow these non-believers to judge our faith. Now, that is biblical too as well. We can't allow these non-believers to tell us what our faith says. Because if we do, we allow them to change what it means. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that, oh, hey, you should give to the poor, but if somebody doesn't want to give to the poor, you should use force to make them give to the poor. Government force. That giving to charity doesn't fall to us as people, but it falls to government. What's funny is when we look at Republicans as a whole, conservatives as a whole, we see that they donate to charity at a much, much higher rate than any other, uh, than Democrats do. Because they do believe in private charity. Democrats don't believe in private charity. They believe in government charity. And they want to convince you that submitting more to the government and giving them more of your money is a Christian thing to do. They want to change completely what our faith really says. Because they, and they don't care about Christianity. They just want to do it for electoral victory. Oh, there you go. There's my speech on religion. Not a common thing you find. I, I don't often dig into it. And part of the reason why I don't talk about religion often when it comes to political arguments is because when I make a political argument, I don't necessarily want to base it just upon my faith. My faith is a starting point to help inform me about what's good, what's bad. But then I like to uh, go out and look at the reasoning behind it. What we find when we look in the Bible, when we look at things where uh, God or, or Jesus, if it's God's word, then or Jesus's word, gives us parables, lessons, uh, rules to live by, what we find is those rules are good for a lot of reasons. They lead to a more prosperous life. Even if you're not faithful and you follow those rules, you would still have a more prosperous life because it's just a good idea.
I mean, we don't need the Bible to tell us that a man should be married to a woman and then they should come together and raise kids and that a man should be taking care of his family and a woman should be uh, uh, involved heavily in the raising of kids to recognize that when we don't have a nuclear family and when we don't have parents that are involved in their children's education and lives and we don't have parents that care, it results in bad generation. It results in more crime. It results in more poverty. It results in all kinds of issues. You don't necessarily have to be of Christian faith to recognize that because the data points to that. So when I make political arguments, I don't often like to reference faith as much as I like to reference a lot of the data and viewpoints that, look, God, Jesus taught us about 2,000 years ago. God taught us about thousands of years ago in the Bible. He knew about these things way before we needed to do a study on it. But time and time again, studies have proven that those rules, those laws handed down through, through biblical teachings result in better lives and a better society, period. Now, moving on, though, there is a few bills uh, that passed out of committee last week we want to discuss. I'm going to talk about Senate Bill 6, Senate Bill 11, and Senate Bill 20. All three bills worth discussing that made it through committees last week. Um, but before we, we go into that, uh, we do have to take a short break. You're listening to The Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Want to reach out to the show? Feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. Dot com. We'll be back here in just a few, few short minutes. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperator Show, your source for Kentucky politics. So we had a few bills over in the Senate make it through committee last week. That means they will most likely be coming up for a vote here very shortly into the Senate. We are about a third of the way through the legislative session, um, and and we don't have many bills that have passed both chambers. It's it's weird, you know they change this rule where they didn't allow pre-public viewing and pre-filing of bills before session started. And they did this because they didn't want us, the grassroots, to be super engaged in the pre-legislative process. They only wanted the lobbyists to know basically what was going on. So that way it was the lobbyists who got to, to push for the bills they wanted to see passed. And so therefore, uh, uh, we, the citizens, wouldn't have a chance to lobby for the bills we would want so they decided uh, they didn't want people getting all riled up. But by doing this, by not creating a lot of public conversation about bills, which honestly, that's where most of these legislators, when you talk to them, they'll tell you. They find out about bills mostly from the public. Uh, they'll find out about bills passing committees and as such from, you know, what's coming up to vote and what's passing through committees if they're tracking it. But as far as all the bills out there, what bills are out there that's good, that maybe needs a push on it, that doesn't have a lobbyist out there, you know, peddling for it. Well, they're finding out about those from actually us, the constituents reaching out to them, but they didn't want that this year. And so that's really slowed down uh, the sense of urgency out of our legislature. And so they're actually taking a lot longer to pass a lot of bills. But one bill that's made out of committee, finally, is Senate Bill 6. You may remember this. It's the DEI bill for colleges. It passed. Uh, this bill would seek to ban DEI programs, initiatives, employees, DEI hiring, DEI trainings from our public universities. Now, one question I have on this bill moving forward is why are we, now think about this just objectively for a second. 
DEI in colleges does not nearly possess as much risk to our future as DEI in K through 12 education for several reasons. One, K through education, K through 12 education in some form or another is required. Two, it is almost basically if, if in public schools, about 80% of kids attend public schools is completely taxpayer funded. Um, you know, when you look at our public universities, they receive a lot of taxpayer dollars, but they're also receiving, of course, tuitions, private grants, alumni donations, endowment funds, uh, list goes on and on of other places they're receiving money that isn't from necessarily right from the taxpayer's pocket. Uh, obviously, large chunks are, but they don't necessarily get it all from the pocket. But when you look at K through 12 education, it is nothing but taxpayer funded uh, for 80% of students. Um, it is required. College is something you've opted into going to compared to K through 12 education of some form or another. Obviously, you're required to do that. So DEI in K through 12 should be a number one address. But yet, despite this bill advancing that is getting rid of DEI uh, initiatives and push in our public universities, well, what we're not seeing is any kind of push to end the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging department that's at the Kentucky Department of Education. Literally millions of tax dollars are funding this in our K-12 education. They're not breaking down. This DEI initiatives, they have regional DEI coordinators set up through the Kentucky Department of Education, funded to the tunes of millions of dollars, these programs, and they're not doing anything about it. They're doing nothing to stop. Well, there's been a bill proposed to kind of do the same thing in K-12 education, but where is the bill? Where is it in the budget? Not $1 can go to... You know, when you're funding education, put a line item in the budget. This not one dollar continued funding of the diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging department at uh, uh, the the Kentucky Department of Education shall no longer exist. That any creation of a similar program with a similar mission shall also not be able to receive funding. That the heads of these organizations shall be summarily dismissed and will not receive any more taxpayer funding. Where is that? Even in just the budget, it's not there. You don't go looking for it. I'll tell you right now, it's not in there. They didn't put it in there. So while we're taking aim at, at getting rid of this in colleges, great. It languishes and continues to exist in our K-12 through education. In fact, quite the opposite. Longtime listeners, and by long time, I mean several weeks, will remember that I dug into the budget and found $4.6 million being set aside to give teachers a $2,000 a year incentive to go get trained by DEI pushing certification group. And we're paying them two grand a year to go get that. Pushing things like telling guidance counselors to set up, uh, uh, to do implicit bias testing and assessments and then set up prejudice reduction groups, whatever, whatever Orwellian meaning that has. Yet that gets to continue, but Senate Bill 6, getting rid of it in colleges, well, that's advanced forward. I'm not saying it shouldn't pass. Obviously, it should pass. It's a good thing. But we should be prioritizing our K-12 education first with this kind of racism, indoctrination that they're doing. That's what DEI is. It sounds great, diversity, equity, inclusion, but it's racist. That's what it is. It's, it's teaching, by innately teaching, and this is what it teaches, that uh, uh, that you need to create special programs and rules for minorities instead of white people um, because in order to help minorities get ahead. Well, 
what you're saying there innately is that somehow minorities are inferior to white people because they need more opportunity and special programs and special rules. And that's racist. I don't believe they're inferior to white people at all. I believe we, we all, regardless of our skin color, have the same uh, ability to succeed or not succeed based upon our own personal choices. But DEI seeks to teach something completely and utterly different. So it's good that we're getting rid of it in colleges. But come on, guys. K-12 education needs your attention on this matter. We'll take a look at Senate Bill 11, which is um, allows... So right now, when it comes to theft and stealing, theft by deception and so on and so forth and stealing, um, the bill, uh, the current statutes in place on that, uh, what it does is it... Um, allows over 90 days. So like if you steal things over the course of 90 days uh, and then you get caught and you're found with all these things or you get charged several times over the course of 90 days with stealing, they're allowed to throw all that amount together in order to consider it as one charge to basically elevate the charge. So, you know, if you if it's theft less than $500, it, it doesn't come with the same charge as theft over 500 but less than 1000 uh, more than 1000 but less than 10000 more than 10000 Those are all different charges. But if you steal multiple times over 90 days, they allow you, they allow prosecutors at their discretion to add that all together and then charge you, um, as, as theft, as if it's one crime. So if you stole a hundred dollars eight times, you'd now be charged with stealing $800. If it happened over 90 days, rather than being eight different charges for a hundred dollars each. Well, this bill, um, Senate bill 11 would move that 90 days to one year. So now any theft that occurs over one year, uh, can be treated as one charge and those totals put together. So if you steal, you know, a hundred dollars, 10 times or 12 times over a year, once a month, you're stealing a hundred bucks. Well, now that's $1,200 worth of theft. And you can be charged as if you stole $1,200 one time. That's what the bill's seeking to do. My only problem with it is it has shall instead of, uh, 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 it has may be charged instead of shall, which means that it's up to prosecutorial uh, uh, discretion. And that's part of the big problem we're trying to fight right now is the fact that judges and prosecutors are using the prosecutor Cultural discretion to let off people that are stealing small amounts several times. They're just like, ah, we don't want to prosecute it. And it's creating a real big crime issue all throughout Kentucky. And if we put in shall instead of maybe, well, now at least it'll force those prosecutors to treat any thefts that have occurred over the course of a year and add them all together into one charge. And I, I think especially since we have such an issue with theft and that's just absolutely destroying many of our cities, I think that'd be a good thing to look at. But coming up after this in our final segment, we're going to be covering Senate Bill 20, some discussion that took place on that in committee, some some hypocriticalness from Senator Whitney Westfield, as well as a dumb comment by Berg on this. We'll be covering that after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. And you are back with this final segment of the Andrew Cooper Writer Show on this wonderful, wonderful Tuesday. Uh, Senate Bill 20 passed out of committee last week here in Kentucky. Uh, the bill did pass, but there was some really interesting discussion by two members that I think bears us taking a look at. And so what the bill would seek to do 
is that if you commit a crime, a felony, uh, 15 years or older, but you commit it with a gun, with a firearm, you would be kind of automatically tried as an adult. So, so this is from committee, okay? So this is how the, the bill sponsor and a bill pusher uh, testified that the bill would work. So right now, uh, if a crime is committed um, by a, a uh, individual that's 15 or older and uses a gun, the county attorney or commonwealth attorney can decide whether or not they want to have that case transferred into adult court uh, out of juvenile court into uh, circuit court and then have that case heard and tried as if that 15 years or older is an adult. Now, what this bill would do is it would automatically assign, if a crime was committed with a gun, it would then, according to testimony, go automatically into adult court and there the judge can make a finding on if the um, a gun was used in the crime. If a gun was not used in the crime, it would then get put down into youth court. But if it was, then it could stay in adult court and, and rulings could be made. And the, and the main reason behind this uh, would, one, to make sure that youths do end up with a record. When they have a violent crime committed with a gun, that they would, in fact, have a record. And then, um, obviously, then... Uh, as well, these are pretty heinous crimes. I mean, if you're 15 years old, shoot, attempting murder, which is one of the things that isn't considered a violent crime in Kentucky, for some reason, attempted murder with a gun is not considered a violent crime in Kentucky. So this bill would seek to change that too as well. But anyways, um, if if the, the youth committed attempted murder with a gun right now, they could possibly end up uh, without a... Uh, criminal record that falls them into uh, obviously adulthood it could be sealed away and and honestly that is a pretty violent crime and not only that but we're seeing youth crime skyrocket and a big part of the reason why we see youth crime skyrocket if i'm to be honest is because a lot of gangs and others know that youths get treated differently in our judicial system than adults do and so if they're going to carry out a crime they're going to say look we're going to have this 16 year old kid do it versus this 19 year old kid do it because the 16-year-old kid will be let off easier. And so it's kind of taking an aim at dealing with that. Well, Whitney Westerfield, Senator Westerfield, who you may remember put forward uh, a CAR, Crisis Aversion Rights Retention Act, uh, the red flag law, a bill aimed at somehow pre-cogging, uh, pre- looking into the future and seeing that somebody may commit a crime with a gun and then therefore taking guns away from them before they've committed a crime or been accused with a, uh, of committing a crime of hurting themselves or others that we could take guns away from them and take away their constitutional rights uh, before doing that. So the same guy, so you'd think that this guy would be like, yeah, people who commit crimes with guns uh, should be held super accountable. I mean, I want to take away people's guns before they commit crimes with them. Not me, but that's Whitney Westerfield. I mean, that's what he's saying. I want to take away people's guns before they commit crimes with them. So you'd think that when you commit a crime with a gun, he would be like a super big hawk about this. But he didn't. He had a big problem with the bill. Why? Because it lacked prosecutorial discretion and it doesn't take into account. Therefore, you can't take into account the use history. Now, do you particularly care what some 16-year-old's history is if they attempted to murder somebody by shooting them? Do you think that they should be punished different? Well, you know, they're a real good kid. Just try to murder somebody. But otherwise, real good kid. I mean, I'm being honest here. Is that really what you want? I get it. You're like, hey, they're kids, everything else. 
they're still trying to murder people at the age of 16. They really shouldn't be uh, uh, given that many options to be a part of civilized society for quite some time after that. They have to know, like, oh, you did something wrong. You're going to be punished for that. We're not going to slap. You're, you're encouraging children to commit more crimes if somebody's able to go out and try to kill somebody and then, like, hey, you know, just don't do that. Here's a slap on the wrist. You got an interesting history. Here's a slap on the wrist. Go on about your time. And additionally as well, once again, this prosecutorial discretion is part of what's killing us, Not well, sometimes literally, but what's, what's causing this huge rise in crime all across. You have these very liberal prosecutors deciding to not prosecute crimes and then letting criminals back out onto the streets. Now, obviously, during this discussion, the issue of parents and their role in this came up. This, of course, is now a national conversation as we had that school shooting that we've recently seen parents getting charged criminally for as negligent parents involuntary manslaughter. And so we're going to we're running into some real issues now here because, of course, every parent of, of almost every single criminal will have a parent that wasn't good. Now, even good, God-fearing parents end up with kids that commit crime sometimes. But really, this is a comment on government. Yes, bad parents make for criminal children. More often than not, criminals had terrible parents. But isn't this... It's not even that they had terrible parents. It's that they had parents... I mean, I mean, follow me here, okay? If you had a mother and a father both working jobs, or at least one of them working jobs, one of them staying home, one or the other... Even just say a parent staying home, one parent working a job and not relying on any kind of government assistance and living an honest kind of upstanding life like that. Before we even get into like caring about their kids, belief systems, abuse in the home, that already sets them up to have better parents than almost every single criminal has. Almost every single criminal has is coming from a single parent household. This is just by the data. It's coming from a single parent household. So right there, you're taking out two parents not involved in the picture. They're also coming from parents who are on government assistance, a lot of times milking it. They're coming from parents that are disinterested, that are turning their kids over to the system. And rather than, you know, taking a look and saying, what are we as, as government doing to continue this kind of behavior, to incentivize this kind of behavior? What are we doing? I mean, we have our welfare system set up to incentivize parents not to get married. Perhaps instead of killing the nuclear family, we should be incentivizing the nuclear family. Instead of pointing that to a problem and pointing at parents, well, Senator Berg comes along and says, no, 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 we can't blame parents. We can't blame the government for destroying the nuclear family. Of course, you can't say that because it's she's a Democrat, Senator Berg is, and it's a lot of her policies that are destroying the family. No, no, no. Instead, she has this comment, which is literally, I. this is so next level stupid, but listen to what she had to say. If every one of those guns that were stolen out of a car, which is the vast majority of guns on the street right now, are stolen from cars, if we had a law that made you responsible for storing your gun safely so that it could not be stolen out of your car, that it was in a lockbox that was locked in your car and kids could not break in your car and get that gun. I'd say 100%. That is a step in the right direction. But to say simply we're going to throw up our hands and there's nothing to do but put these kids away. Now talk about victim blaming. 
It's not the criminal's fault that they stole your gun out of your locked car, a locked place. Your gun was technically locked away behind a locked system. No, no, no. It's your fault. Why? Because you didn't put a lockbox in your car. A lockbox, by the way, that can be stolen out of your car and then taken home and broken open. Like, the car is already locked. Clearly, they don't have a problem trying to break into locked things. What, you lock it in your glove box? I eh, just pry open the glove box, check it. I mean, it's, it's already locked. You want to get more guns out of locked cars, Senator Berg? You don't want the answer to how to get more, lock gun, more guns out of locked cars because the answer is get rid of gun-free zones. Allow people to always carry a gun. In fact, encourage them to carry a gun because the only reason why people keep guns in their locked cars is because they are either not legally allowed to, their employer forbids it, or they don't feel comfortable carrying their gun on them at all times. So get rid of all those issues so people are carrying their guns on them more and not leaving them in cars. But once again, they're talking about saying there should be a law in the books. I've gone over this, this safe storage gun bill that says when you put your gun in a locked car, you're not storing it safely. Sinnerberg just said she believes that you should be held liable. You should be criminally charged. Because you put a gun in your car, you locked your car, securing the gun away from anybody else, but then somebody broke in and stole it, so you should be charged for that. This is the way they think. It's everybody's fault but the criminals. And then we wonder why these prosecutors and these judges are letting criminals back out on the street. They're trying to even blame the person whose car got broken into for why a gun got stolen. It's absolutely ridiculous. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on The Andrew Cooper Show. I thank you all so, so much for joining me. We'll be back here tomorrow at, uh, let's see, back here tomorrow, 9 a.m. on WZXI, 1 o'clock everywhere else. Have a great rest of your day.